Amen. Thank you, uh, Caroline, so much for, for leading us. Well, as I said earlier on, I've um, been on holiday uh, away for three Sundays in a row, uh, which has been great, been really, really lovely. But I've got to say, absence does make the heart uh, grow fonder. Uh, one of the troubles with being a church minister in the modern world is that even when you go away to a, an island somewhere off the coast of France uh, with very poor internet connection, you can still watch a church service at your home church. And, and actually, it's been an incredible blessing. I've seen as Andy on the first week and then Kay and then Duncan last weekend. You have to excuse me. I'm having a bit of a weird sugar rush at the moment. Um, <laughs> and then and, uh, Duncan last weekend have been unpacking these scriptures as we, we've gotten into these stories in the book of Acts. And I've got to say to you, it's exciting. It's exciting to, to watch online and just sense the presence of God moving uh, in your church. I actually wanted to be back here. Uh, not away uh, during those weeks. So uh, just to say that, I've missed you, but it's good to be um, back. Uh, This morning, we're going to be looking at this story from Acts chapter 9. If you've got a Bible, do open it up. I'm not going to read the Scripture verses again, because actually that little video clip that we watched was actually a direct reading, uh, pretty much word for word, from our Scripture reading this morning. But you might find it helpful to have Acts chapter 9 open, so you can look back at it as we look at different references along the way. Well, the story's an amazing one, isn't it? What happened to this uh, man called Saul uh, is probably one of the most well-known stories in the Bible, even by people who have got very little biblical knowledge. Uh, The reason for that, of course, is that uh, we talk about having had a Damascus Road experience in common English language. Maybe you've said that to somebody. Something really weird happened. It was a bit of a, a Damascus Road experience. Or on the flip side of that coin, you might well say, well, I've never had a Damascus Road experience. It's great for you, uh, but I've never had one. In fact, this account of uh, Saul's conversion was so important to Luke, who is the author of uh, uh, Acts that we're reading through during this summer holiday series, that actually it's recorded three times. A person's story told three times in chapter 9, in chapter 22, and again, uh, again in chapter 26. And it's made me wonder, what was so important about this particular person's conversion? Why was his conversion so important? Well, we're told in verse 15, God says to Ananias, who will come back to a moment, this man Saul is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do something really fresh in the world. And this particular individual, Saul, is going to be the person who's the catalyst of this new movement which is going to be happening, Christianity. Well, we know from the story, if you've ever read Acts, that the the church was growing steadily. It was going really well before Saul's conversion. And then when Saul comes to faith, it's a pandemic. Now, we know all about pandemics and what happens in pandemics, don't we? People get infected and the thing spreads rapidly around the world. Well, that's what happens. Saul comes to faith. He would later become Paul, just to clear up that confusion. But Saul would come to faith, and then like a pandemic, the good news of Christianity would spread around the world. And you see scattered throughout uh, the letter of Acts, or the the book of Acts, we're really muddling up what this is, aren't we? The the book of Acts, you see scattered around stories of a 1,000 people coming to faith, or 3,000 people trusting Jesus for the first time. People bursting out of of buildings that they were trying to gather in is kind of the image that I have in my head. But one of the things we discover about Saul very quickly is that Saul is a very, very unlikely convert to Christianity. And that's the first thing I want us to notice as we continue to think about what it means to be church in the 21st century, as we dare to be church uh, living together in faith today. 
The first thing we learn is that God is able to save the most unlikely of people. You see, when I look at uh, Saul, he was a very unlikely candidate for salvation, wasn't he? Why? Well, firstly, he hated Jesus. I do want to suggest to you, if you're going to come into a relationship with Jesus, hating Jesus as a foundation is not a great start for coming to faith. But that's what we find with Saul. He hated Jesus. But then secondly, we discover that Saul hated anyone who had anything to do with Jesus. In other words, Saul hated the church. That is not a great start for a conversion story, is it? I hate Jesus, and I hate anyone who's got anything to do with him. The illustration is often given of a, a comparable experience. Well, nowadays, it would be like Richard Dawkins, a self-confessed militant atheist, being converted to Christ and then going on to become an evangelist to the British Humanist Society. That's the contemporary equivalent of what's going on in our Bible story. And it's really important that we notice that. God is able to do what we cannot imagine. God is able to do what we might think is impossible and Saul's story proves it. In fact, my story proves it. And if you've come to faith in Christ, then your story proves that God is able to do the impossible. As you look at the opening verses of Acts chapter 9, the very opening verse says that Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the disciples of Jesus. Now, if you've got an imagination, you can probably imagine the kind of things he was saying. This is the polite way of saying he was not being very nice. What we have is a bloodthirsty man. He's a wolf who's out for the kill. He's a man who's consumed with just one life passion, which was to eradicate followers of Jesus from the earth. It wasn't enough for Paul to have already broken up in the, the, the church in Jerusalem that we heard about last weekend as we heard about the story of uh, Stephen. But now he's willing to travel without public transport 135 miles to the north to Damascus from Jerusalem to catch up with those Christians who'd managed to escape the persecution that was happening there. His mission, as we heard in the, in the story, was to bring these believers back bound in order to be tried and then persecuted for their faith in Christ. Now, I wonder, why did Saul do all of that? Well, maybe he was on a commission scheme. Maybe the leaders in, in Jerusalem had said to him, look, Saul, for every person you bring back, we'll pay you X number of pounds. Or just maybe, which is the more likely scenario, he did it because he was an extremist and he did it out of love. Actually, it delighted him. He, he so believed the things he believed that he acted out of those beliefs. Now, of course, these kind of things are happening in the world of religion even today. Maybe you've been following the news about Salman Rushdie and how actually there's a £2.5 million fatwa, uh, a death sentence, still sitting over his head uh, within the world of Islam. People are persecuted for the things they've come to know and love and believe in all religions. But in our scripture reading, such is the extent of Saul's heartless cruelty that uh, Luke, the author of Acts, says to us he was willing to go after men and women in verse 2. Here we have a man who's so heartless, he doesn't mind making orphans in his cause. He was so zealous for the, the law of Moses that until these followers stopped spreading what he believed to be the most terrible heresy that was damaging Israel, then he wasn't going to stop. And then the story comes. He goes off with his henchmen to approach Damascus. And as he's going there, this bright light flashes around them. They all fall to the ground and they hear a voice. And the voice says to them, or says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, in that, I don't think there's an ounce of harshness. This is not an angry God sitting on a cloud, wagging his finger at Paul uh, with aggression. But these are words of compassion. These are words that are seasoned with grace. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, in his confusion and his understandable shock, Saul replies with quite an odd response. He says, well, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Somehow in this moment, Saul knew that it was God that was speaking, but he wasn't prepared for what he heard next. You see, the very next thing he hears is this, is, I am Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. God spoke, and when God spoke, it was Jesus. Now, this was just Paul's worst nightmare. Why? Because it meant that everything he was against had just in this moment been proven to be true. Saul knew in this moment that Jesus had died, but he must have been resurrected. But more than that, he must have been exalted back up into heaven because the voice was coming from heaven. And can you imagine the loudness of his gulp in this moment as he plays, ge- um, uh, as he plays theological gymnastics and works out, hang on a minute, this is true. What these people have come to believe is true. Jesus died, he was resurrected, but more than that, he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And in this moment, we see the conversion of Saul or of Paul. Saul, in this moment, crosses a very thin line, doesn't he? From from death into life, from darkness into light. It's a really thin line. Now, I wonder as you think about your own journey of faith and your own conversion story, if you've had one up to this point, I wonder, was the line that you crossed really thin, or was it like my story, a really fat line? You see, I often look back at my Christian journey and I think to myself, wouldn't it have been amazing to have a Damascus Road experience, a story that I can tell of how, uh, I don't know, I was a, a terrible drug addict and I lived a terrible life and I murdered thousands of people and then Jesus appeared to me in a bright light and I undeniably knew it was him and, and my, I've been converted and listened to my story, isn't it amazing? And I remember when I came to faith in Christ in those early days, I kind of wish that was my story. But my story, I have always thought in those days, well, it's a bit boring. I often say, well, I kind of blundered into a relationship with Jesus. It happened a bit haphazardly. If, if there was a line, it was an incredibly thick line, and it, it took me a long time to cross it. And I wonder if you can relate to that this morning. If you can, I want to say to you, one conversion is no more important than another. All conversions are equal. It doesn't matter how it happens. The important thing is that it does happen, that you've crossed a line, whether that line be thin or whether that line be fat. And your story is good news. It's a story that's worthy of being told of a God who has worked in your life in the best way possible that he could meet you. I'm kind of grateful it's not a normative experience that we have a Damascus Road experience when we come to faith. I find God often saves those up for the most hard-hearted, cold-hearted of individuals. Who's ever had a Damascus Road? Uh, No, I won't ask that question. That's not fair. (laughs) But what a brilliant story. As God looks at Saul, he actually doesn't see anything of any particular value in Saul. Saul had nothing to make him a worthy recipient of God's grace. As the song goes, what was he good for? Well, the answer is absolutely nothing. You see, the Bible is very clear and the story is very clear that if our salvation depends upon anything that we can do or anything that's within us, then none of us would be saved. 
But here's the really good news from the text this morning. God can take a man breathing out murderous threats against his disciples. He can take a man who's a committed enemy of the faith, and he can change that individual's heart from one of hatred to love. And if God can do that for Saul, then God can do that for Richard Dawkins. If God can do that for Richard Dawkins, he can do it for me. If he can do it for me, he can do it for you. And I want to say this really clearly this morning, because I know this is a big issue for some of us. That person who we might think is lost and beyond the reach of God is not beyond the reach of God, because God can do the impossible. I want to encourage you this morning to keep on praying for those people who we prayed for in our stillness, in our silence a few moments ago. So the first thing we learn in the story, God is able to save the most unlikely of sinners. But the second thing I want to see in the story, and, and I nearly had eight subpoints to this point, which, which I guess you probably wouldn't thank me for, so I've reduced it down to four, but they're quite quick. The second thing I want us to see from this story is that with every true conversion to faith in Jesus, there is always fruit. There's always an outward evidence of that conversion, that something has happened, a transformation has happened in a person's life. In our text today, I can find eight marks of conversions, but here's the top four. And the first one is a sense of the the conviction of our sin. Before a man or a woman becomes a saint or a, a saintess, they must first see themselves as a sinner. They must be aware of their sin. Now, most of us don't like the idea, do we, of talking about our sin or saying I'm a a sinner. In other words, somebody who's fallen short of living for the glory of God. But actually, most of us in our most honest moments can say, do you know, that's me. I've not lived the kind of life that I know God would have wanted me to live. And in order to come into relationship with Jesus, we first have to be aware that we've fallen short of the glory of God. But we can confront that reality in the confident hope of God's grace. Don't you see that here in the story as uh, as Saul is wrestling with his own sense of sin and his own conviction here? We see the grace of God. Well, how do we see it? Well, in verse 4, it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? These are words that are seasoned with grace and with compassion. This is not a a finger-wagging God. Elsewhere in Scripture, whenever Jesus spoke out a person's name twice, it was always to express his tender concern for them. Think of a couple of stories. Martha, Martha, why do you do this? Simon, Simon, you're going to be the one upon whom I, I build my church. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, with tears in his eyes. Chris. Chris, why are you living like this? Why are you trying to live without me? And just maybe this morning you want to put your own name into that mix. When Jesus speaks out your name twice, it's not because he's wishing condemnation. It's because he's expressing compassion. And I imagine here if we could see them, we can't because of the bright light. But if we could see the eyes of Jesus here, we'd see Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus is not asking the question for information from Saul. He knew full well why Saul was persecuting his church. But he's doing it to say to Saul, you need to be aware of your sin, Saul. And actually, as you become aware of your sin, would you know to my grace? Would you know the compassion I have for you in this moment? Isn't that amazing that despite the fact that Jesus knows everything there is to know about us, he still looks at us with eyes of compassion. That's God's grace. Isn't God's grace mind-blowing? And you know, sometimes I think as Christians, we can take all this stuff for, for granted. Yeah, God's expressed his grace for me, and we can say it so flippantly, but actually God has expressed his grace to me. Chris, Chris, 
would you receive my grace? And I wonder if you know that grace in your life today. Because the very same grace that Saul received is the same grace that's available to you and to me today. Well, in response to all this traumatic revelation that uh, Saul was a sinner, did you notice in verse 9, if you've got the text in front of you, that Saul didn't eat for, for three days? Now, I doubt in this moment Paul was thinking, do you know what? I've discovered this amazing thing. I must now fast for three days. But actually, more of the response we're seeing here is of a man who's so convicted over his sin, so mourning about his sin. It's almost like mourning over the death of a loved one. And actually, we just lose our appetite in that kind of a knowledge. I was chatting to somebody just earlier this week who had exactly that same experience as they came to faith in Jesus. They became aware of their sin and actually it caused them to stop eating and drinking for a short season. So the first mark of conversion that we see from our text is there is no such thing as a truly born-again person who lacks a sense of their own sinfulness before a holy God. Caroline, thank you for leading us in the singing of All About God's Holiness Because actually, when I contrast my own life with the holiness of God, I I realize just how far short I've fallen. Charles Spurgeon once said when he was lamenting the shallow and questionable responses that he saw in his day was this. He said, today we have so many built up who were never pulled down, so many filled who were never emptied, so many exalted who were never humbled, that I all the more earnestly remind you that the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit must convince of sin, otherwise we cannot be saved. And we see that in our text this morning. The second thing I see, and don't worry, they get quicker, is that there's something going on here about humility. It's often said, isn't it, that that pride is the root of all sin. And I could show you scripture verses to, to back that up. And if we're really, really honest this morning, every single one of us at some point in our journey of life has to wrestle with pride. Maybe we wrestle with it all day, every day. And pride can show itself in all sorts of ugly ways, can't it? Well, in a desire to be noticed or to be recognized or to be appreciated by others or admired. I I fall into that trap regularly. Maybe pride exhibits itself in our life by boasting or selfishness or selfish ambition. Maybe we curate our Facebook page to make our life look better than it really is. Maybe we're in pursuit of status. I read a great stat this week that said... uh, Uh, 90% of people who drive BMWs and Mercedes only drive them because they're status symbols. How many of us own Mercedes or BMWs? God bless you. (laughs) How often do we compare ourselves to others? How often are we unwilling to ask for help? Here in our story, we find Saul, who's a prideful man who Uh, is encountering Jesus in in this moment. But before he he got to that encounter with Jesus, he had power, lots of it. He had loads of authority. He had incredible status in the Jewish world. He had a great sense of his his own greatness right next to him as as he traveled. Here's a man who's full of pride. Paul would go on to say in Philippians chapter 3, if you remember it, that he, he had an overinflated understanding of who he was and, uh, and, and what his heritage was. Do you remember his words? I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he said, I was a Pharisee. But then he goes on to say, I consider all of that, and I could use an expletive here, I consider all of that dog dung, he says, literally translated compared to knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Here we find a man who is humbled. 
a man who realizes that my upbringing actually is worth nothing, that my education is worth nothing, that my family lineage lineage is worth nothing when it comes to the issue of saving faith because actually Jesus places very little value on those things. It was Nicky Gumbel who who says in the Alpha Course, being born in a Christian nation doesn't make you a Christian any more than being born in McDonald's makes you a hamburger. What a great quote. But that's what Paul discovered here. He's discovering, look, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Neither does having Christian parents. So helpful to hear from Pete this morning, isn't it, that he grew up in a Christian home, but he still needed to make that decision of faith for himself. Being married to a Christian spouse doesn't make you a Christian. Making that decision for yourself is what makes you a Christian. And it takes some humility to make that decision. I can't tell you how many times I didn't come to faith because I thought, I can do this on my own. Why do I need a savior? And then God humbled me. And I came into the most amazing relationship I've ever known. There's an almost comedic moment in the story here as... This pride-filled man gets led into Damascus, completely blind, by a believer of absolutely no reputation in the form of Ananias. And nobody leads this very important somebody, in his own eyes, into Damascus. You see, humility with Jesus isn't optional, it's mandatory. And those of us who have come to faith in Christ will be aware of our sinfulness and in humility will be aware that we need Jesus all the more. And I want to encourage you this morning, never be ashamed of the fact that you need Jesus. Scripture says to us, Jesus must become greater, we must become less. Number three, a true sign that you've been converted is all about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When Saul asked, who are you, Lord? He got an immediate answer to the question. Jesus says, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And in this moment, Saul instantly realizes that Jesus must have been alive from the dead. He didn't expect that. He recognized to his horror at first that not only was Jesus alive, but he must have been risen from the dead as he was alive. And therefore, because the voice is coming from heaven, he must have been exalted into heaven to the right hand of the Father that therefore made Jesus God. Can can you imagine the confusion in Paul's mind in this moment? In this moment, Paul discovers, or Saul discovered, that everything that he said was a lie was actually truth. Everything that he was seeking to stand for had fallen to pieces and and was worth nothing. The resurrection of Jesus categorically confirms that Jesus is Israel's Messiah and therefore Jesus is the Lord of the whole earth. I wonder if you've wrestled with that truth for yourself. That Jesus really is risen from the dead and if Jesus is risen then he's exalted to be at the right hand of the Father. That Jesus is the name to which every knee should bow takes humility to bow, but it's a truth that changes everything. When this risen and exalted Jesus tells Saul, get up and enter the city and uh, then you'll be told what you must do, you'll notice that Paul does not say, do you know what Jesus, I think I'd like to accept you as saviour, but I'm not yet ready to accept you as Lord. He doesn't say that. 
He doesn't say, look, Jesus, I'd love for you to forgive my sins, but then after you've done that, I'm just going to carry on with my life and I'm not going to follow you. No, he gets up and he goes into the city. Ananias prays for him. He regains his sight. And the very first thing that Saul wanted to do was be baptized in order to uh, recognize his obedience to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. No more religious tick boxing for Saul or Paul as he would become. He would uh, recognize immediately that Jesus was an all or nothing kind of commitment. And you know, the older I get and the more I live this Christian life, the more I'm challenged to live out as a sold out follower of Jesus. It's so easy to bob along. And I think the challenge of our text is to not do that. It's not enough just to get a ticket to heaven, we have to pursue the will of God in our lives. It's not an either-or option. And then finally, we discover the Holy Spirit is so important in this journey of faith. In verse 17, we discover that Ananias says to Saul that the Lord had sent him not only that he would regain his sight and have a physical transformation, but also that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit and therefore have a spiritual transformation. Verse 17, he sent me so that you may see again and, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. What an offer. What an offer. And that is the offer that Jesus makes to every single person who would come into relationship with him. That God would plant within us on that moment we make a commitment to Jesus, the seed of faith and his great desire is that that seed of the Spirit, rather, would actually grow in our lives, that the fruit of the Spirit that Paul would go on to speak about, about love and peace and patience in Galatians, would become even more evident in our lives. Do you know, I find it such a relief that God invites me into relationship with him to follow him as Lord, but then doesn't abandon me. He says, and Chris, I'm going to give you the seed of my spirit in your heart that's going to grow and is going to equip you to live the life that I'm calling you to live. But what a mind-blowing thought that the God of the universe, the God who was involved in creation itself right now is living in my heart and is living in your heart if you've come to know and love Jesus as Lord and Savior. Do you find that mind-blowing? Yeah. But how easy just to think, oh, yeah, that's my truth. That's my reality. But it's more than that. It's a life-transforming reality. The more we're inviting God by his spirit to be at work in our lives, the more like Jesus we will become. Now, I can tell you for absolutely nothing that I've tried far too many times to do life in my own strength. And when I do, I end up defeated, deflated, disappointed, and discouraged. There's a free four-point sermon in one sentence for you. And I wonder today if you're feeling any of that, defeated, deflated, disappointed, discouraged. Let me invite you this morning. Allow God by his spirit to do an even greater work in your life than he's already done. Because he's willing and he wants to do it. What a great story of conversion and transformation. Saul's story is my story. And I wonder if Saul's story is your story too that Jesus revealed himself to you and you took that step. A step of faith with confident hope that you would receive the grace of God. And I want to underline that as I finish. That today, if you make that decision for the first time or for another time, you know, I've committed my life to Jesus about a thousand times or more, just to be sure. But actually, on the first time I did that, I ran into the arms of a Savior who loves me. 
I ran into the arms of a saviour who says, Chris, Chris, I'm so pleased. Chris, Chris, would you receive my grace? Chris, Chris, I present you to my father blameless. Wow. Whether you make that commitment today for the first time or for another time, can I encourage you this morning to picture yourself running into the arms of a father blameless? He's not going to reject you. He's not going to bat you away. He's going to wrap his arms around you. And there's going to be a party in heaven because of your conversion. Why? Because every conversion is worth celebrating. This is the art of celebration. So as we respond this morning, can I invite you to close your eyes? And I would ask you, please, this morning to actually close your eyes. I want this to be a moment where... In a sense, this morning, we can respond physically to God without being at all worried about what's going on around us or what anyone else might be thinking or doing. And my eyes are closed as well, and they're going to stay closed. I just want to invite you this morning, if you want to make a first-time commitment to invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, to become a Christian this morning, or maybe today you want to make that commitment afresh. I'm going to make it for the one thousandth and one time. My hand's just gone in the air and I'm saying, Jesus, today I make that commitment. Would you just raise your hand this morning, eyes closed, if you want to make that commitment for the first time or you want to make it afresh. What we can't see today, God does see. And God delights and he honours in heaven the responses being made here on earth. And Lord, this morning, those of us with hands in the air just say, Lord, we trust you. Lord, we thank you that you went to the cross. But more than that, you defeated death and you rose again. Thank you, Lord, that our sin has been forgiven. And therefore, we are blameless, <laughs> blameless as we approach our amazing, heavenly, holy Father. Lord, see our hands and know that this is our commitment to live for you today. But more than that as well, and again, just keep your eyes closed, just invite you to flip your hand over, ready to receive. Lord, our hands are just held out today, knowing that we can't do this journey of faith on our own. We need you. We unashamedly need you. We just pray, Holy Spirit, come. <laughs> Would you fill us? Would you touch us today? Lord, if we've made that commitment for a first time, Lord, give us the seed of your spirit, and Lord, we pray, water it so it grows. Lord, if we're praying this prayer afresh, Lord, give us a new, a fresh infilling of your spirit that we would live for you with even greater passion. Holy Spirit, come. Just receive what God has for you today. Maybe he's going to grow in you those fruit of the spirit. Maybe today is the day when he gives you a, a gift of his spirit that you can use for his service. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Okay, hands down. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, so much that we can make these responses here on earth. And Lord, you see them in heaven and you honor those responses. Lord, today is the day. For the first time or afresh, we choose to run into your arms with the confident hope we will be recipients of your grace. Chris, Chris. K, K, Pete, Pete, Caroline, Caroline. Put your own name into that mix if you've made that commitment today. Lord, we love you. We bless you in Jesus' name. 
Amen.